Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Lance Mortlock, author of Disaster Proof, AI, The New Frontier. Lance, welcome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Mark. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, especially on this holiday weekend, I thank you for joining us. Uh, please tell us about your professional background of what you do for Ernst & Young. Yeah, so um, I've been a consultant for 20 years, um, and I've worked primarily in the strategic uh, planning and in the and, and, and strategy development space. And, and in my career, I've had the opportunity to work with some 60 organizations in 11 countries and, and overseen several hundred different projects and engagements in that time. And, and I tend to get pulled um, into situations with clients um, in all kinds of sectors where they've got complex problems to solve and they're, and they're trying to chart a, a, a path forward in terms of the future. Um, so love what I do and, and it affords me uh, lots of variety in my career, Mark. Didn't I see that you went to school in the U.S.? Yeah, so I, I, I've been to a few different schools. I, um, I did my undergraduate in the UK, where I'm from originally. I did my, my, my MBA in, in the UK as well. And then I've spent quite a bit of time studying innovation at Stanford. Uh, I was part of Harvard's um, High Potential Leadership Program. Um, I um, have spent time at MIT studying the application of artificial intelligence, um, as well as INSEAD. Um, and I'm a visiting professor at the University of Calgary, Calgary Haskane School of Business, where I teach um, advanced strategy to, um, to undergrads and, and postgrads. Fantastic. Uh, and when we've had quite a few speakers who've written books just on AI on this show. Uh, we had Ash Fontan, who's one of the biggest investors in AI just recently, a couple of weeks ago on the show. So obviously it's top of mind to everyone. Why did you write this book? Uh, why did I write the book? Um, I think we're at a unique point in time, Mark, where, um, listen, COVID has been incredibly challenging for society and for economies at large across the world. And a lot of organizations are now taking stock of what just happened in the last year and a half and thinking, okay, now what? you know, where to from here. And so it struck me in all of this uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, volatility that we've been living with, that, you know, now is a great time to be saying, well, what does the future look like? Where to from here? And so my book, Disaster Proof, is, is anchored on that. It, it is a tool that helps organizations, both in the public and the private sector, um, think about the future and think about different possible futures that could play out. 
and 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 I wrote it for that purpose. And I and I would tell you, Mark, that um, based on the what I have seen in the last three months, six months since the books come out, um, a lot of interest in um, thinking this way. Um, so uh, it's been good. People should been thinking about uh, thinking along this way right from the get-go, especially large organizations like the government. What's your definition of disaster scenario planning, and how's that different as you write than forecasting? Yeah, so so the 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 way the way to think about it is, you know, scenario planning is really about helping you deal with VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, and painting you know, multiple possible futures that could play out. It's about stretching mental models, telling a story about those different futures that could play out uh, and helping you figure out what signposts you should be kind of monitoring and thinking about that give you a signal that a particular scenario is playing out um, in a certain way. You know, when, when I think about forecasting to your question, that's more about, predicting the future. There's, you know, where we are today, a set of parameters, and it's planning for that one future. It's very probable. It tends to be very quantifiable. Uh, and lots, lots of organizations do forecasting on a very regular basis as part of their planning routine. Where scenario planning is, is more about thinking about and planning for multiple futures, not just one. And that's the key distinction in my mind. And a lot of people kind of get confused, I would say, Mark, between the two. Uh, I think you need both. You need good forecasting in an organization, but uh, you should be using scenarios as well. Oh, no question. Um, what skill sets, expertise, and experience should be on the team that helps the CEO put this together? Large organizations, I would say, is that you would have planners and strategists within the planning to process with leadership team. But in small organizations where you don't have a dedicated planning function, I think, you know, tapping one of your leaders on, on the shoulder that, that has, you know, good analytical skills, good research communication skills, um, it can be applied. This is not complicated. One of the chapters in my book, I lay out a very simple six-step process that I think that you know anyone with a good business mind can pick that up and run with it, and actually come up with some pretty valuable um, outputs. Um, so I think if you've got those skills, um, you can you can drive success with this. But if you have a dedicated planning function, that's a good place to start. Why don't you talk about those six steps? So I have that in my list of questions, but we might as well talk about that now. Yeah. So. Um, you know, in the in the book, what I try and do is sort of outline the activities, the questions, the tools, the accelerators that you should be using. And the six steps are very simple. Step one, define the scope and the question you're trying to solve for. That's where you start. And identify the stakeholders you want to be involved in the process. I would always advocate, and, and as I use this tool all the time with the clients that I work with, a cross-section of stakeholders is really is really powerful because you get different diversity of perspective. The second step is explore the environment. That's where you do the research. And that can be a multi-month process, or it can be you know, a, week, a week's worth of, of effort. But you really need to explore the environment to inform the question you're trying to solve for. So 
primary, secondary research, what are the big trends, what are the big uncertainties that we're worried about as an organization? The third step is, okay, we've done all this research, what does it mean? So let's analyze the trends, the risks, the uncertainties to assess what it actually means to inform our thinking. The fourth step is you build the scenarios and most organizations would build between two and four scenarios. You can use a matrix-based approach where you have two axes. So I talk about this in the book. You've prioritized two uncertainties and that gives you four scenarios. Some companies, and I've used this, use a more continuum-based approach where you have you know, two or three scenarios based on one continuum. But the fourth step is really building those scenarios. Fifth step, you confirm the scenarios and you stress test them. And what that really means is you say, okay, we've painted these different futures that could play out in our organization. Um, what does it mean now in terms of strategically, what are we trying to achieve? And the final step is monitoring the signposts and executing the strategies. And that's where you're looking at those signposts or those signals to say, well, is that scenario that we thought was going to play out really playing out in true life? And what, what are we going to do about it? I went through that very quickly. This is laid out in a very simple process in one of the chapters in the book. And I think if people want to find out more, I'd encourage you to kind of you know refer to that chapter. But something that can be, I would say, Mark, scaled from uh, being a multi-month process that is um, involving a number of people to, you know, I've worked for, um, you know, I've worked for the big organizations and done this with big organizations, but you can also apply it in organizations of less than 10 people, and it can be very effective as well. Well, what's the biggest mistake people make when they're going through this process? Um, I mean, I think, Maybe one of the mistakes that, that happens is, is not engaging the employees in the process. Um, it, 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 the, the, the power of the tool comes from not only the management discussion and the, you know, the top leadership discussion, but can you engage employees to get their insights and their feedback along the way? And I think you get way more buy-in and engagement. Strategies are successful when you translate them down into the organization. And I, I truly believe that and seen that in organizations that um, have applied scenarios and used them to engage employees at the front line. So I think that that would be, that would be the big mistake is to keep it at that, that top management layer and, and not engage employees in the process. Many CEOs have a primary skill set like innovation, sales, marketing, finance but not all are strategic thinkers. And I'm sure you've run across quite a few of them during your career. You have a chapter dedicated to the skill set needed and the profile of the right type of leader to lead a strategic plan. Could you please talk about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, CEOs obviously set the tone from the top. Um, and if you're going to use future thinking and scenarios, they need to be engaged in the process. Um, otherwise, I think the organization won't benefit from the power of this management tool. Um, CEOs, I think also, and I've seen this, they need to actively engage. So not only support, but engage in the dialogues around the future possibilities of the company. Um, they need to model the right behavior to say, look, this is important. I think too often 
strategies are linear in nature, you know, we're at point A and we need to get to point B. But but what happens if something catches you by surprise along the way? Is your strategy nimble and flexible? And I think CEOs play a role in um, advocating for that to say, yeah, we need flexible, nimble strategies that that help us maneuver as the environment changes. Um, and I think CEOs as well play a role in you know, rolling up their sleeves and, and getting involved, truly understanding what the risks and the uncertainties mean to their organization. And I've worked in companies where, you know, the CEOs haven't been engaged, haven't rolled up their sleeves, haven't been supportive. I think you're kind of wasting, um, you know, valuable time, effort um, in the process if you don't have that support. What's the best ways for the CEOs to sell? Because you're right, if they don't get the support of the people, and I've heard people I know who said, uh, you know what, I don't really believe in the strategy the CEO has. So essentially, I'm going to drag my feet about it because I know my boss feels the same way. They weren't involved in the process of putting this strategy together. We don't get it. So what's the best way for them to communicate this on an um authentic level, not an artificial level, because a lot of folks do this, but they're not really sincere about involving the employees or even about the plan itself. Yeah, a couple of things I would say is I I think involving employees along the way, um, not just at the end where, you know, the the output is kind of baked. So along the way would be all right, when we're doing the research and exploring the environment around the trends, the risks, the uncertainties, give us some input on what you think are the important trends that we should be focused. Give, give, us, give us some input on that prioritization of those trends, those risks, that, those uncertainties. I think when the scenarios are actually built, it's important to get some input at that point and engage employees in that process. I think authenticity comes from routine, regular engagement along the way and not just at the end mark. And then the other thing that I would say is that um, part of conveying authenticity and engagement in the process is how you tell the story. One of the things that I talk about in the book is, is the power of storytelling. You know, um, and 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 it and it does play an important role. One of my favorite um, professors at Stanford, Jennifer Arker, um, you know, she said, "Listen, our brains are wired to understand and retain stories. Story is a journey that moves the listener, and when the listener goes on that journey, they feel different, and the result is persuasion and sometimes action." And I think with employees, what you're trying to do is get persuasion and you're trying to get action. And you can do that by using scenarios to tell a powerful story. And the best organizations are the ones that I've seen that have not only described the features of each scenario, but told it in a way that's a compelling story. And that can be very engaging. I know when I've run uh, different ventures, I've gotten everybody at every level, including the receptionist. Actually, I found the people at the lowest level had the most substance to provide because they were on the front line. So how far down uh, do you go in the organization to get people involved in a substantive way? I mean, I think it depends on 
the capacity that you have to engage, you know, if you're British Airways, for example, or Amazon, and you've got tens of thousands of employees across the world, you know, that's a massive undertaking. Uh, so I think you need to be careful and fit for purpose on how far you go and whether you engage everyone or a sample population to get input uh, along the way. And, it, and it's a judgment call because it can be an expensive exercise and, and you need to kind of weigh that, weigh that up. I don't think there's a perfect answer, Mark. I think it depends on the size, the complexity, and what you're hoping to get out of the process, how far you go. It's not one size fits all. Uh, what role should outside advisors and board members play? I mean, we always hear about board members being involved in the strategic planning process, especially of very large organizations. But you know, across the board, what, what's the role that uh, advisors and board members can play, and how do you best leverage them, and how do you prepare them to provide useful uh, advice? Um. Yeah, I mean, board members play a critical role. And I've spoken to a number of North American boards um, about disaster proof over the last several months. And, you know, they they play a role in terms of asking the right questions. Um, questions like, has management adequately considered, you know, different possibilities that could play out? How resilient is our organization? Have we prioritized and formalized uncertainty management. You know, one of the examples that I talk about in the book is, is Rolls-Royce. You know, they do a very good job of understanding and prioritizing key uncertainties in their business. Um, I think boards play a role in saying, you know, is our strategy too linear, too tunnel focused? Is it nimble and flexible enough? Have we asked questions about, have we considered the risks, are we integrating risk and strategy in, in the right way? So I think boards play such an essential role from a governance perspective, holding management accountable for some of these, uh, these questions. And then the other aspect of your question, Mark, is, is really the, the role of external advisors. I think advisors play a role to help facilitate, to bring outside perspective, to challenge the organizational norms um, and, 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 and do that in a, obviously a professional and a respectful way. But sometimes organizations can get too insular and, and narrow in their focus. And I think expanding and exploring wider possibilities is the role of an external advisor that can be very powerful. How does the um, board, um, especially the board, because maybe not so much the advisors, but the board, hold the CEO accountable for these plans? Because you know a lot of companies make these super nice plans, they involve McKinsey and it ends up on a shelf, not really useful or it gets dated pretty quickly. What, what do you suggest? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, so there's a couple of things. I, I think you know the, the board obviously evaluates the CEO's performance. So that's one mechanism that they can play, including um, compensation. Um, and setting compensation for the CEO. I think the other, the other role of the board, and it, it's interesting, I was talking to a major US, the board of a major US um, electric vehicle component manufacturer uh, about this a, f a few, uh, few weeks ago. And 
you know, we talked a lot about strategy execution. And I think a lot of organizations fall into the trap of, you know, we've, we've developed this great looking strategy, you know, it's a hundred pages, it looks great. It's based on good analytics, but who cares if you don't execute it? And I think this is where, and I actually ran a, we had a EY, not to talk about EY um, on this type of forum, but EY runs um, uh, um, a function called EY Center for Board Matters. And I was presenting at that uh, last week, and we about had about two and a half thousand board members on the call. And one of the things that we talked about is the role of the board in terms of strategy execution and how they really need to make sure that, yes, it's great having the, you know, the consultant informed strategy, but what are you doing in terms of execution? Do you have an execution management office? Are you monitoring the right signals and the right KPIs in terms of execution success? have you made someone accountable for execution and made it part of their goals and part of their individual performance plans? I th it's a game of two halves, Mark. You need both. You need a great strategy, but you know it's only as good as how well it's executed. Yeah, and we see that play out in sports all the time, real time and live, in terms of putting that kind of strategy together, both on the field and planning for the future of the team to keep it on, a win uh, on winning ways. Yeah, there's this, you know, just to interject there, Mark, there's there's this great company. I had the opportunity to work with them in the UK years ago. They're called um, Mission Excellence. And it's basically a bunch of ex-British and American Air Force pilots that focus on relentless execution and what it requires. And what they would say, and they've developed a very simple model based on, you know, how they run um Air Force missions is the importance of planning, briefing, executing, and debriefing. And you need to make sure that you balance um, between all four. You plan, obviously, up front, but then you need to brief the team on the plan. You relentlessly execute, and then you debrief after the execution to drive the continuous improvement process. It's not rocket science, but it, you know, it's stuck in my mind for the last um, couple of decades. It's just, it's such an easy thing, but I think we forget about it a lot. Um, a question from the audience. Why, uh, why, uh, why we should uh, we consider organizations as hierarchical? That is one of the fundamental issue. One can't, uh, why can't we think decentralized human or holonic, maybe holistic organizations? Thoughts on this? <laughs> I'm not sure I quite understand that question. Can you say it again, Mark? Uh, why should we consider organizations as hierarchical? That is uh, of the fundamental issue. Why can't we think of them as decentralized human or holnic uh, organizations? Thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit off topic, but um, I, you know, there's, um, there is a great book that I would recommend you uh, read called Holacracy. Um, which is all about decentralized organizational structures. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think hierarchy sometimes builds in bureaucracy that slows organizations down and, and prevents them from, from being nimble and, and agile in a world that is full of complexity and uncertainty. Um, 
like listen i'm 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 not an organizational design expert um but i think that there is always opportunities in organizations to uh, maybe not go all the way to holacracy but but maybe part of the way and delayer aspects of the hierarchy that allow for kind of a more nimble agile um you know culture and way of doing things and i get pulled into those kinds of projects uh, from time to time i mean i remember i was uh once working on a project in a um in in russia and um you know we were looking at the number of layers in the hierarchy and between ceo and frontline there were 19 layers and it it just astounded me how they were able to get anything done and a key part of our role was was kind of delaying that and and creating a bit more nimbleness do, do different uh cultures do planning in different ways than let's say we do in the US or what you've seen in England as you just mentioned Russia and all these different layers that you go through. So when you've worked with companies around the world, and you have lots of great examples in your book, do you see differences in culture? Um, nothing really comes to mind, uh, Mark, in terms of culture informing how planning um, gets done. But I, you know, the 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 age old um, example that we all like to use, you know, the Silicon man, the Silicon Valley mentality that is very agile, um, you know, very nimble. I think that's sort of a microcosm of culture. Um, I think I think that there are different governance rules where you know the American system and the UK system is quite similar, but when you look at sort of international governance and governance rules and how governance gets applied in business systems, say in France or Spain or those kinds of countries, you do see some some differences that I think. Can manifest in in terms of how how planning is done, but um, you know certainly for the last decade I've been primarily working in the U.S. and Canada, so uh, and those systems are very similar. From the audience, Wayne Gretzky famously said, "You must know a lot about Wayne Gretzky living uh, in uh, Canada." Uh, famously said he would skate to where he thought the puck would be. How can a business improve success being first to market? knowing competitors will quickly fill the void if the products are successful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great quote. Um, my Canadian colleagues obviously love uh, love love their hockey, as, as do I. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that in strategy is, is what you're always trying to do. You're trying to figure out where they're before the competitors get there. And that's part of, you know, what I talk about in the book is, you know, if you take a a linear approach to strategy, where you know point A to point B, um, you know you, you you might be missing some of those key uncertainties that that could be could be playing out and and not maximizing the opportunity. I was just talking earlier today uh, with a with a chamber of commerce and and an economic development um, organization, and we were talking about scenarios that could play out for a city a particular city that we were we were talking about and the future of that city and i think if you can be more prepared that listen like um for this particular city that's very energy focused um that is one scenario that could play out what would we do in that situation if the puck went there but but the puck could also go to agriculture where 
this particular city has a massive agriculture opportunity. Also, cancer research is another thing that's been looked at to build a major cancer research uh, center. And so I think in strategy, you're trying to fill, figure out the puck can go to um, multiple places on the ice and how well are we prepared for each of those eventualities. And that's the nimbleness and the strategic flexibility that I talk about in the book. You know, I get asked this a lot because I do a lot of this planning work, also writing business plans, operating plans, strategic plans. And clients always ask me the same thing. How long does it take uh, to put this plan together? So, you know, organizations, of course, it's much more complex when we have 100,000 people than it is with 25 people. So, but, uh, and you talk about this in the book, how long reasonably should a plan take to create that, you know, at least you can have the first discussion? Yeah, like, um, you know, I've been working with a Toronto-based utility company um, and it can be a three-month process, you know, maybe a month of research, a month of building scenarios and a month of kind of engaging in what, what does it actually mean strategically to the company? But I've also worked with a non-for-profit where we did it in a week, um, soup to nuts. We did a bit of high-level research um, and developed the scenarios, had a big meeting to discuss it with the management team and the board, and we were done in a, in a week. So I think you can scale it to how deep do you want to go and how complex and big is your organization. I think trying to do it for a week with an organization of more than 10,000 people, which I've worked with, impossible. You wouldn't get much value from it. Um, and so that, that's why I think, Mark, like the, the power and the beauty of this tool is it can be scaled up and down depending on your needs. And, and, and most of our listeners are uh, running entrepreneurial ventures. And so I guess they're interested in how long will it take, you know, how many people really need to be involved. But also, what kind of time and financial investment is required for this? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in terms of time, I think you could spend, as I said, a week, you know, five days of effort of a couple of people on this to, you know, you could invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in consulting spend and internal capacity and spend three or four months doing it and everything in between. So there is no perfect answer here. I think it depends on how deep, how complex your organization is. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know, with a handful of people in your company, uh, I think you could spend a couple of days on this and get a lot of value out of it. And I've done that with with small non non for profits very successfully. And you talked about a reasonable sized group to get involved because you wrote that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers engaged too few people to get buy in. What's too few? Oh, that's a tough question, Mark. Um, too few. Um, I think. You know, what, what you want to be considering is when you go in this process, what are you trying to achieve? If, you, if you're really set on um, engaging the employees as part of the process because you believe that that will help you with the execution, then you probably need to involve more. Um, you know, if you want to get diversity of perspective, you know, doing this with a small group of leaders, but then not getting input from a particular function or product line that might have a completely different perspective, you might be missing something in terms of the diversity and the kind of cross-functional representation. 
So I think you need to sort of take a step back when you're embarking on something like this saying, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? Um, do I want to drive this to the front line in terms of execution? Is diversity of perspective important to me? Do I want internal and external perspective? Like one of the things that I, I work with a cementing company, for example, we went through a similar process and I said to the CEO of this company, I said, listen, if you want, and, and they provide, they have a number of key customers. I said, if you want true external perspective on your business, let's invite three different customers into the tent to inform our thinking here. Because at the end of the day, you serve customers. You're all about your customers. Why wouldn't you ask for customers' input on what is so important to your company, which is its strategy? So we did that. And we picked a big, a medium, and a small customer to get diversity. And we brought them into the two-day offsite where we were discussing the strategy and the scenarios. And it was so valuable to the process because it informed their thinking uh, from a customer's lens. And how many customers do you suggest? Because like I've done this work where I've interviewed like 25 clients and I have to say the insights are amazing if you ask the right questions of these folks. So how many clients do you think you should involve? And who are the people within those client organizations should you be involving? Because sometimes the check writer really has nothing to do with whatever you're doing, but the people on the front line do or somebody in middle management does. So who do you get involved from a client perspective? Again, I would say you, you have to figure out, well, what's our capacity? Um, and are we going to get new information if we involve more customers or you know more external stakeholders in the process? Um, and, and it's getting that kind of right balance because I think you can blow your brains out with... Um, you know, involving too many customers and you're getting more of the same feedback and that's just not valuable. It's a waste of your time and a waste of the customer's time. So I think you need to sort of say, okay, if we were to look at the different customers we serve, um, what is going to give us the maximum variety and cross-functional input? And you might bring in some external speakers as well. Like one of the things I do a lot with clients is say, well, let's bring in an economist to give us an economics view or a policy advisor to give us that kind of lens. And so getting some of those key speakers to inform the thinking of the leadership team is important as well. Well, what would you say is like the minimum number of customers where you're gonna get some kind of substance and you could always do more customers if, if you get some good learnings here, but what would you say is the minimum number of customers you would involve in this process? Three, maybe. Okay. Yeah, maybe three to five. And and is that and how involved are they in your in the company's day to day or buying from the company or something? What, what's the level of involvement they should have, and uh, where their input would be valuable? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you 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 may engage them um, to inform what do you think are the big trends and the big uncertainties that we should be focused on as a company. So through that kind of step two and explore the environment. And then I think when you're um, analyzing the trends, the risks, the uncertainties, you might involve them again at that point. You might also share with them the scenarios once you've built them to say, what do you think? What are we missing? Um, it also depends on, does the, does the customer have the, the desire, the will um, to be that involved in the process? Um, 
So I would kind of, I would kind of go at that point. I've done something as light touch, um, Mark, where we bring them in for an hour Q and A, and you know we've got the management team around the table, and we bring them in for an hour, and and we say, look, we want to ask you a bunch of questions around what's going on around the world, and here's our strategy, and test it with you. But I've also worked with organisations where you know, particular particularly in the product space you're actually involving the customers on an ongoing basis to test your products, to get feedback on your products. And you might be paying them actually to do that. And it's a very engage, engaging process on a very routine basis. How do you make sure they don't just tell you what they think you want to hear or they won't tell you something that they feel like is going to hurt your feelings? Like you really want the, them to be honest with you because you really can't improve without that. How do you get them to do it? What's your technique? Yeah, I mean, I, I always, ahead as a facilitator, ahead of these kinds of discussions, have a conversation with a customer one-on-one in advance to say, hey, we're bringing you in. We want the good, the bad, the ugly. And so don't hold back because if you hold back, it's not going to be valuable. And so I think that conditioning ahead of the session is um, really, really important. And that's worked for me in the past. I used to actually make a list uh, and a list of all the ideas that came from clients and put them uh, on a website and also send them out to clients so they actually knew that we took these ideas and implemented. So we'd show the idea, who it came from, and then show the implementation. Have you ever done something like that? I haven't. No, that's pretty interesting. I like that idea. Um, Please tell us what is the Center for International and Strategic Studies and what they learn about pandemics, because I thought this was very interesting. And why didn't our government follow their advice? That's a loaded question, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, um, it's a non-for-profit policy research organization. And, you know, they focus on defining the future of, of national security. Um, and what they did, which was pretty interesting, uh, Uh, before the pandemic kind of played out is they looked at um, what would happen in a situation where we had a novel coronavirus um, and um, what would it mean from a scenario perspective? So in October, 2019, two months before the first recorded case of COVID-19 in Wuhan, they, they went through this pr- process. They came up with a fictional novel and highly transmissible, transmissible coronavirus similar to SARS or MERS. Uh, they gathered a team of experts, cross-functional, like we've been talking about, Mark. Um, and, and to me, when I was researching for my book, the parallels um, that unfolded were, in my mind, striking. In their scenario, they projected uh, a 3.1% death rate. Um, and, you know, last year, I think the World Health Organization said we were running around 3.4% because of COVID. Um, they, they like COVID-19, the fictional virus they came up with in their scenario spread through international air travel. Um, they said that there would be, you know, enormous economic and political problems and overloaded healthcare system like we've seen in the US. The insights that came out um, for me, was surprisingly real. And it was a very powerful example of how, you know, 
we were using scenarios, but we weren't really listening to the outputs. There was another example, which was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation teamed up with John Hopkins University uh, and the World Economic Forum. Um, and, and I would point out, um, I, I've been fortunate enough to have um, the founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum endorse my book, uh, Dr. Klaus Schwab. Uh, and what they did is very similar. They played out a novel coronavirus that spread from bats to pigs, pigs to human in Brazil, and then it spread through the world. The point is that we use these powerful tools, but 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 somehow something gets broken in in actually listening to it. And here's two great examples where um, you know our governments around the world, in this case the U.S. government. Uh, didn't listen to the results of these exercises, and now we're living with the consequences. So you would ask, Mark, well, why is that? Why didn't we listen? I, I don't know. I wasn't in the room. I wasn't in the in the discussions with um, you know those involved. Um, but I think it does demonstrate that um, we do have foresight capability uh, as business as society that I think we need to take well, way more seriously. It's interesting, Mark, that following 9-11, as an example, the use of scenarios actually went up. And we're seeing that now following COVID-19, although we're still living with it, the use of scenario planning is going up. But I think you get into this honeymoon period where, and I hope it doesn't happen again, it's going to be a couple of years of, oh, we need to think about this. There's tons of uncertainty. And then we get complacent as humans, as society, and then it tails off again until the next uncertainty. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is all these different events that seem to happen every 10 years. And every time it happens, we get massively surprised and we go through the cycle again. So, And you're right about that in the economic world, every 10 years, there's an upending of the market and then everybody's surprised and everybody says, well, we're going to, you know, um, really dig deep. We're going to go and tighten our controls and everything. And then every time that happens all over again, just like uh, we're loosening up bank, um, all the uh, rules and regulations with banks and they have something bad happens. Everybody's going to wonder, why did we loosen it up so much? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, what companies do you think were well-prepared for handling the pandemic and why were they well-prepared? I would say, you know, some of the companies that I, I have felt like have been, you know, very well-prepared would be in the, in the tech sector. I mean, I look at companies like Microsoft, uh, Zoom in particular. I mean, Zoom believe it or not, I think it's like a $60 billion company now. Um, like talk about like market cap. Yeah. Talk about seizing the opportunity from a strategic perspective. Oh my God. Um, Microsoft, you know, with, with teams. And so I think, I think some of these particular, you know, Amazon's another one. Um, these companies have seized the moment and dealt with, uh, and transition to a virtual workforce incredibly quickly and continue to grow their companies at exponential speed. So um, is there any companies that kind of fell on their face during this that you felt like, geez, these guys weren't well planned out at all and they should have been, 
much better. Uh, they should have had the scenario planning already uh, for something like this. Is there anybody that comes to mind that you said, geez, they could have done a lot better job? Um, I mean, I don't want to throw any particular companies under the bus, but I, I mean, I think I've seen the government and the public sector struggle a lot. Um, you know, they're running major organizations, um, and I think they've perhaps moved to, uh, in the early days, to the, the, new, the new ways of working much slower, Mark, I would say. Um, and then I've seen, you know, a mix in between. I mean, the, the oil and gas sector, as an example, has been incredibly challenged. Um, particularly when we saw the Saudis and the Russians flood the market. Aerospace is another one where, you know, no one could have predicted that um, we went from, you know, passenger traffic around the world, what it was, to at the height of COVID, you know, we some airports were running at 5%. I, I don't know if you can ever plan for something like that, um, because it's just so fundamentally different to what you're used to. Um, but, you know, maybe they could have been more prepared, the airlines and the, um, the airports around the world, because they've been hit probably one of the, one of the most. And, and they were hit before the same, you know, with SARS and some of the other things, right? 9-11 um, uh, was another one in North America. I mean, that shut down airline traffic for a period of time. So um, this might seem like a random question, but I'm just curious about this. Where does cryptocurrency fit into disaster planning? Let's say if the banks fail or impeded. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not a cryptocurrency expert. I, I just think it's another one of those uncertainties you need to start to think about. You know, if you look at what China's doing, <clears throat> particularly around the launch of, of their cryptocurrency, I think we need to watch these because they, it has the potential to disrupt banks and currency markets in a way that we've not seen before. So it's yet another uncertainty that I think you need to think about, like climate change, like artificial intelligence, like the rise of China, all these big issues that we're contending with. So that, that's my next question is how, how can and should artificial intelligence be used and what are its benefits? Yeah, I mean, I talk about this in one of the chapters in the book. I think, you know, particularly an arm of artificial intelligence around natural language processing is a very powerful tool to help us deal with the massive volumes of data that exist in the world. You know, the famous saying is we've created more data in the last two years than the rest of history combined. And that keeps happening. You know, last year, I think IDC said that we created 44 or 50 zettabytes of data. It's a huge amount of data. The challenge that we have as strategists is how do you deal, process, and interpret what this data means? This is where AI comes in. Natural language processing is a tool and a proven tool that helps us build algorithms that helps us process that data, drive insights, understanding of risks coming out of that data. And I think we could do a lot more to leverage that in the future. But it all depends on how that's set up, right, AI, because I've done a lot of reading on AI, not only having authors in here, but read a lot in the Harvard Business Review. And if you're asking the wrong questions, or you're setting it up to collect the information the wrong way, it's not very helpful to you. That's right. Yeah, there is a lot in, 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 in the setup, in the algorithms, in the data that, and how clean the data is. Um, and how you functionally interpret the data 
um, the technology that you use, the skills and capabilities that you need to build within the organization, which are you know, pretty sought after. So there's some things that need to be in place, but you'll also be surprised that you know, there's a lot of proven technology, a lot of free software out there um, that you can, you can leverage and start to apply in your organization, however big or small. So we, we talked about the use of advisors and, uh, and boards of directors, but you write that few companies ask their consultants about scenario planning. Why is that? Um, good question. I mean, I think, I think lots of organizations get caught into the linear strategy and the linear process of thinking um, because it's easy and you can get your head around it. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that I talk about in, in disaster proof is this notion of, and it, and it wasn't a concept that I came up with. There's an American uh, psychologist, her name is Joy Guilford. And, and she talks about this notion of convergent and divergent thinking and, and convergent thinking is the ability to give the correct answer to a standard question that doesn't require a significant amount of, you know, innovation. Um, and it focuses on finding the solution to the problem. She also talks about divergent thinking, which is about opening the mind in various directions. It's, it's spontaneous, it's non-linear, it's exploring multiple solutions to a problem. I think too often to answer your question, Mark, management teams focus on deciding what to do and converging because that's comfortable. And I, I talk about in, in Disaster Proof, the importance of um, exploring the possibilities and diverging thinking and, and balancing these two, these two sides of the coin, uh, which is not always natural, but I think management teams need to encourage themselves to do that. Um, and that's part of this. The, I think the reason I don't get asked the question is, is they want to converge on what to do. And wallowing in the ambiguity of divergent thinking isn't always natural or comfortable for people. Do you, do you think entrepreneurs kind of think this whole uh, scenario planning is bullshit? And But people who've worked their way through large organizations are more embracing of this? No, I think, um, I think I've seen a mix um, of large and small companies apply it successfully. I think you're always going to have certain CEOs that, you know, that lead entrepreneurial organizations saying, you know what, this is a waste of time. Um, and, and still be, you know, successful despite themselves and good for them. Um, I am advocating that you should at least ask the question and challenge yourself to say, have we thought about, you know, different possibilities that, could play out and there's nothing wrong with asking that question. And remember, Mark, you know, you don't need to make this a long drawn out process. It's something that you can think about and engage your team in, in a week, in a couple of days. So, um, you know, I would challenge those types of people to not think that this is some kind of bureaucratic planning process. It doesn't need to be. I'm all bought in every year. I used to uh, host like 185 um, CEOs of organizations for breakfast and lunches, and we would get all these ideas, call them down to to three, and implement those ideas. And then we do an offsite strategic planning session just for a day, and um, and break ideas down by the types of things that we did, 
and found those things to be incredibly valuable, especially when people saw we were implementing their ideas because then people were really engaged. And I think that's important. You talk a lot about that in the book. Question from the audience, as a business, should you focus more on the competition or on your own product improvement and R&D? No, I think the answer is both. You've got to look at both and you've got to balance both. Don't be too insular focused, but like, don't be so focused on the competition that you f- forget about you know, your core purpose and your core product that you're delivering to the market. So a balanced approach is what I would say. Uh, you, um, what, what role can trade associations play in terms of their research and or how can members leverage them for enhancing their own plans? So I kind of believe there's a lot of good information uh, that a trade association would have especially these sophisticated ones? Yeah, I, I really like this question. And I liked it because there's two aspects to it. I think one aspect is, yes, trade associations can be a good source of information for you know, trends, risks, and uncertainties that relate to the sector that you know, your particular company is operating in and the products and services that you're selling. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect of, of this question that I think um, is pretty interesting is I think trade associations also play a role at an industry level to facilitate scenario thinking because I think that they're in a, a unique position to convene a number of companies as it relates to a particular industry or sector and say, well, holistically, what is going on? What are the different scenarios that relate to our sector that are playing out? And and play that convening role to bring a cross-section of companies in a particular area together. And I've seen that play out in some sectors in a very powerful way. I, I don't mean to make this a political question, but I just think it's going to be a great case study going forward. And that is, what, what have we learned about how the Biden administration handled the withdrawal from Afghanistan, from a scenario planning. And, and, again, and just to be upfront, I did vote for him um, and, and think he's a great guy and, and can do good things. But uh, it seemed to me that there wasn't a lot of good scenario planning, or if there was, they kind of ignored it. So what's your take on this? Yeah, it, it's been a, a disaster, hasn't it? Um, and, uh, and, and, and the British were involved, my country were involved as well as the Canadians as well. Um, I don't know, I, 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 who knows what the military planners did? You know, scenario planning has its roots in military planning, by the way, from more than 50 years ago. They were the guys that started it. Shell and GE and a few other big companies took it a step further through the decades. Um, it feels like something went wrong from a planning perspective. You know, did they have a scenario that played out to say, hey, you know, the Taliban are going to take over and they're going to do it in two weeks? Um, did they have another scenario that, um, you know, the Taliban are going to take over maybe in, in two months or two years? Uh, I, would, I would be guessing, uh, Mark, but I think this goes back to another question that you asked earlier in our conversation, which is, you know, what are the typical challenges? What typically goes wrong? Something that I didn't mention that I think is pretty interesting is I think we as humans, we tend to get to a place of what's comfortable, what's familiar. You know, we reinforce what we know 
with data that supports that. And we already know it, we reinforce it. So as it relates to the situation in, in Afghanistan, what, I'm, what I wonder is they probably did scenario planning as it relates to you know, different possible futures that could play out. Taliban take over in two weeks, Afghan army you know, repel them and re the Afghan government retain control, something in between. But in that process of thinking, did they widen their, their lens far enough. And, and that's what I wonder, Mark. Did they go far enough to say, you know, worst case scenario, Taliban take over in two weeks. Maybe their worst case scenario was Taliban's going to take over in two years or two months. They didn't stretch their thinking wide enough. You know, I'll, I'll give you an interesting example, a personal example that I had that goes back to airports. I was working with a major Canadian airport with the CEO and the management team. And I was sat around the board table and the CEO looked at me and he said, what do you think the worst case scenario is? I said, no, 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 let's look at 9-11. What happened to airline traffic, passenger traffic during 9-11? So yeah, that's an interesting one. During 9-11 in the US, passenger traffic went down um, 5% over the period of time that they measured. So there was a short, it reduced, but it got back pretty quickly. And the average was 5%. He said, okay, as we think about scenarios, I think the worst case situation for us, and this was back in 2018, is probably 6%. We'll take a percent more. So worst case scenario for our airport, passenger traffic will go down 6%. Six months later, after COVID-19 hit, it went down 95%. So my, my point is, like, I'm pretty smart. This guy, this CEO is smarter than me. But we were so wrong, Mark. Like, because we get, even as a consultant, I do this for a living. I get caught in this comfort zone of, oh, well, like, it can't be worse than 9-11. Like, 6%, that sounds reasonable. We all nod each other around the table. And it might be the same, you know, when you're, when you're military planning in the situation of Afghanistan, that senior military officials look, look at each other and, wow, you know, it could never happen. You know, two weeks, they take over the country, never. And, and, and they get caught in that. And they, I think the opportunity when you use these tools is to really expand the riverbank. We've run out of time, but I wanted to ask you one last question. If there's one thing, one mistake or a couple of mistakes people make that they really don't leverage the scenario planning well, what are they uh, that they have to think about? Or what are the two things you really should do in order to maximize the use of scenario planning? I think one would be make sure you get your problem question um, up front, like spend, go, go slow to go fast, spend time on, on, on that piece up front. And then I think the, the second thing is don't try to overmeasure everything. Pick the critical signposts that tell you what scenario is playing out and what is not, uh, but pick just the critical few because I think too many organizations fall into the trap of trying to measure everything. Lance, thank you so much. Your book is absolutely terrific, but, and I like it. It's very practical. It, it's, um, it's not very academic. It has great examples, but you give a structure 
that any company could go and use. And when you read it, you'd say, why wouldn't I go and do it this way? Thank you, Mark. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Good, uh, good chatting with you. Well, everybody enjoy and have a safe holiday weekend. Thank you again for coming on, Lance. And we'll look forward to when you do another book. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> no, not for a while anyway. Have a good one. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.